Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Zebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Rap. I am Bela Zebraff. Thank you to Vin News for hosting our show. It's been two years since COVID-19, um, since it was declared a global pandemic, and it has definitely changed the world. It changed the way we communicate, the way we care for others, how we raise and educate children, the economy, medicine, employment, and much more. Over the past two years, the world has seen such a shift in behavior that it changed society. But is it possible that the public has been misled or has the public been failed during the height of the pandemic? And if so, who will be held accountable? We will be discussing that today with our esteemed guest, award-winning journalist Jonathan Tobin, editor-in-chief of JNS, a senior contributor for The Federalist and a columnist for The New York Post, Newsweek and Haaretz, and host of the podcast Top Story. Jonathan, welcome to the Definitive Wrap. It's been Bela, too long very... that you've been here with us, so thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Jonathan, was the public failed during the pandemic, and what sort of damage was done as a result of the failures of the public health bureaucracy? Well, I think, you know, uh, we should start any discussion about the pandemic by saying that it was unknown territory for the experts as well as the laymen. Um, very few, you know, nobody really saw it coming. Um, it took a while, even for those who supposedly know about these things, um, to understand what was happening and the scope of the challenge. So, you know, to, to assume that it could have been stopped or that nothing, you know, no harm could have been done. That's unfair. Right. It's, it is fair to judge uh, the authorities, our government, the, the health establishment on what they did once they did know what was going on. Because let's face it, you know, and, and, you know, it was, um, you know, in, in, if we go back two and a half years to the spring of, uh, early spring of 2020, you know, all of our assumptions about what was going to happen, what was happening, were largely incorrect. Um, and I have to, you know, start with a little accountability of my own. Um, we were all reacting to some of the early, you know, horror stories uh, coming out of places like Italy, where we, you know, we saw that there was a tremendous amount of, um, you know, of, uh, you know, of, of, People dying, you know, pe you know, people dying, right. and uh, you know, not enough hospital beds, not enough respirators, oh, I... and yeah. you know, we recall those images. And my initial reaction to that was, and once we knew that, you know, old people, older people were were particularly vulnerable, was I feared that our society would sacrifice the elderly. Um, and sort of triage it and um, that if there were shortages of medical equipment, 
uh, they would be denied to the elderly because their chances of uh, survival would not be as good as younger, healthier people. I fear the same thing. Yeah. Right. And, it, you know, it, it went completely against you know, and to do so, which I think was a reasonable fear to have, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, would go completely against you know Jewish values of valuing life. Right. Right. But, you know, once we it didn't take that long to understand that that wasn't what our challenge was. That wasn't the problem. Yes, the elderly were particularly at risk, but we were not sacrificing them. We soon realized that who we were sacrificing was the young and the healthy. We were sacrificing children, especially. And nobody could have imagined that would happen. You know, who who would have imagined that a society that supposedly values its children would destroy their children in, in, in you know, out of, um, you know, in this sense of COVID paranoia, you know, the addiction to fear of COVID um, and the, the, you know, what happened was we closed schools, we locked down our economies, which, you know, destroyed people, destroyed businesses, destroyed livelihoods and destroyed lives. Um, and it caused damage that was, you know, that we're not, we, we haven't just, we barely seen the tip of the iceberg of the damage to children from having two years of, you know, a year and a half of no school and being forced to wear masks for no good reason in, you know, in order to, um, you know, supposedly prevent the spread when in fact children were not in any real danger. Uh, from from COVID, and they were not in any particular danger of spreading it. So you know, we we did things like that, and then we uh, enacted mandates. Um, you know, the the vaccine was a good thing. I think the the instinct to to you know be sort of paranoid about anything is wrong. Um, I've been vaccinated. I think it's a good idea. But of course, the vaccine was oversold. It's basically a therapeutic. It helps you get over it if you have COVID. It doesn't prevent you from getting it. It doesn't right. prevent you from spreading it. Oh, yeah. And, and people have had more than people. once and they were vaccinated. Right. And, and it's, it stigmatized people. And all of this got bound up in politics. Um, it became, you know, it, it became very closely integrated two years ago with hatred of Donald Trump and a willingness to blame him for everything as if he was responsible. And a willingness to look away from where the real responsibility, or or at least what appears to be the real responsibility, which is in China, um, which is the, which is where it started and a complete unwillingness to investigate how and why it started, what role our own medical establishment had with its gain of function research. And, you know, um, so, and the medical bureaucracy consistently lied to us. People like Fauci, the CDC, which was completely, you know, um, as, uh, you know, Tevi Troy, so the former. Why? Why were these why were these lies perpetuated? Well, they were perpetuated partly because the, the establishment just didn't know what it was doing and needed to cover itself. So it up. wasn't deliberate. It was really more. I don't know what it to didn't do start as, so... I don't believe it started as a deep, dark, deliberate plot. But it did once once it started going, you know, they be you know, they regarded themselves, people like Fauci regarded themselves, you know, as the embodiment of science. You cannot question them, even though they were just making it up as they went along too. they had no more idea what was 
what was about to happen than Donald Trump, who who knew nothing about this sort of thing. Right, and, right. you know, this brought out his weaknesses, you know, in terms of messaging. He, you know, he was all over the place. Um, you know, instead it's interesting of sort how of, you say they made things up as they as they went along. But but indeed, we now know That's they what happened, did. Yeah. And, um, you know, they stuck to to remedies like lockdowns and school closures long after it was clear that they did no good. They became bound up with masks, which, you know, became sort of the uh, the the MAGA red MAGA cap of Team Blue, you know, wear a mask to show your virtue, not necessarily to do anything. And it mm-hmm. fed into fear. You know, it didn't just turn us into a, you know, a world, I shouldn't say a nation, but a world of germaphobes. Right. You know, we used to think mm-hmm. people were germaphobes were a little nuts. You know, the people who won't shake hands with you, the people who were constantly watching. You know, it turned everybody into this. And it didn't actually, you know, all their, you know, the, the sort of fetishistic, uh, you know, mask wearing and, you know, wiping things down, you know. With, people which, were wiping down which, mail packages. Yes, quickly, you know, which was quickly debunked, but people were still doing people. Some people still do it. Some people are still wearing masks outside oh, yeah, in the I fresh air. Wearing masks. Yeah, yeah. You know, and unless they're like, you know, cancer patients, you know, it's 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 lunacy. But so it, it fed into a lot they're of scared. pathologies. Uh, that, that fear exactly. can't escape it, it them. It fed fear. Um, I think the authorities fed this fear. And also it became very closely linked to, you know, what government does best, which is to, you know, accrue power and hold on to it, to deny civil liberties. You know, churches and synagogues were closed. Bars yeah. and, you know, and Costco was open, uh, were, were kept open. Um, nothing what made they considered sense. essential. Yes, exactly. And then the essential workers who we were all supposedly uh, praising at the beginning of this, then they became stigmatized if they didn't want to take the vaccine. Right. So, you know, there was so much wrong that happened here. But, you know, the tangible things that we know. That, that are wrong, which was the damage to children from keeping them out of school when there was no good reason for keeping right. them out of mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. And the way that the teachers unions, Randy Weingarten of the American Federation of Teachers being, you know, the, the chief cult, one of the chief culprits there, keeping schools closed so our members could stay home and still get paid and not be really doing their jobs. Right. You know, mm-hmm. we, we understood that, you know, any any fool could have understood that children were going to suffer from this. And we were already seeing in the test results. So what kind of damage are we seeing in these children? Well, honestly, I think we have no idea yet how deep this damage goes. We know that the test scores are way down. We know that instances of, you know, abuse are not being detected, just as we know that people were getting a lot more cancer cases because we had people not going into the doctor for two years for regular checkups and screenings. Um, children, they're develop- they were developmentally set back with, by the masks, by mm-hmm. the paranoia, by the fear. I mean, I, you know, I, my, my parents were from, of the generation who grew up in the depression and you know, they thank God they they lived to survive World War II and yeah. you know, all the decades that went beyond. Uh, they're the greatest generation. But right. one thing, as anybody who knows about the generation who grew up with them, they carried the trauma of the depression and of the fear of poverty and deprivation with them the rest of their lives. I, I think yeah. anybody who knows who grew up with parents or grandparents who had that experience. They never really got over it. 
in, you know, they, they, in some ways they did. It's, it's sort of like being a survivor. And I think the children who experienced these years of sensory deprivation and no school and being mm. taught to fear everyone around them as a potential source of disease. You know, it's like it, we, we were all living in this dystopian scenario of, of fear. Um, they're going to carry this around with them for the rest of their lives, too. And God only knows what kind of, you know, uh, social pathologies will stem from this. Certainly, we know more alcoholism, more drug abuse, more deaths of despair. Well, liquor stores were open during that period. Yeah, right. So, so why not? You know, so clearly, the, the you know, drinking increased. So the people who were their hands on the wheel during this were not thinking clearly about the impact of this disease, which was a disease. Certainly, it was. You know, it was a scary disease, but I think it is increasingly clear that the measures that were taken to prevent its spread and prevent the contagion probably did a lot more harm than it did good. And that's a tough thing to accept because we all thought we were in one of those, you know, if if you stream, you know, if you watch any of the streaming services, there's a new dystopian you know, it's television series about the end of the world that comes out pretty much every week, um, whether it's disease or nuclear or, you know, or environmental. You know, that's the favorite one that, you know, the environment will collapse, you know, and the planet will be dying. Um, you know, there's a new one of those every week. So this fed into this, you know, we're all living in a dystopian scenario now because of this. And it did damage to everyone, children most especially, but it did damage to this, it undermined our, you know, our system, our faith in civil liberties and free speech. It, it, you know, it became the excuse for government to be colluding with big tech and social media to censor dissenting views that turned out to be not so wrong, not misinformation, but actually accurate in many cases. So, so the damage here is, is terrible, you know, is, is terrible. We're still figuring it out. And we, you know, I think we do need some accountability. We need so some I was going to ask you: Will anyone be held the, accountable? The last thing the medical, the, you know, the health establishment wants is accountability. Right. Let's be honest. And quite frankly, you know, we are a complacent people. I mean, you know, all the incumbents, all the incumbent governors, some of whom, like the, you know, who have been reelected despite you know real culpability. I know you know Andrew Cuomo is gone, but not because. He helped kill people by putting uh, COVID patients into nursing homes and slaughtering thousands in the meantime, you know, because of his own bad personal behavior. But, you know, we haven't held our politicians accountable. Um, and that goes for both Republicans and Democrats for the mistakes they made. And that includes Donald Trump, who, you know, went along with what, uh, you know, his you know, his medical his medical advisors were telling him what his son in law was was telling him to do. Um, and, and certainly of all these democratic governors. So, you know, I don't know that, you know, we re, we do need accountability. We need congressional committees investigating the origins of COVID, investigating, um, the damage from, from school closures. Um, and we need to push for that because this can't, you know, you know, this can't be allowed to happen again because the medical health establishment and the people that they have scared into thinking that, you know, who are really now COVID fear addicts, pandemic fear addicts, 
they're ready to do this to us again at the neck at the drop of a hat. And, you know, it's like they 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 tried to do it with this monkeypox scare. You know, this past summer, or, you know, in the spring and summer, yeah. we, you know, and it was a disease. You know, that basically, you know, it's a terrible disease. It's a horrible thing. Basically, limited to people who engage in group homosexual sex. You know, so you know, if you're not doing that, you're not in any danger. Right. But it's like they were trying to pump that up. Yeah, but it didn't take off. It didn't take off. It didn't take off, but, you know, the next thing might. So I I think that's why it's necessary for some accountability on this issue. Jonathan, the states that didn't have strict lockdowns, did they fare better against COVID? Well, of course, that's a debate. And, you know, it depends what you're measuring. And it became instantly politicized. Um, It's sort of an article of faith on the left that the red states that didn't lock down for as long and opened up soon, that they really, you know, that they were terrible and the results were bad. All the the statistics that I've seen show that that's not true. Mm-hmm. I think that when you take into account the economic damage and the way that damages people and leads to deaths of despair and alcoholism and all that, it's clear the states that had the lighter touch did better. So economically um, you know, is where they did better, but not economically, but also it's not clear that they got more people killed. I mean, Florida has lots of old people, as we know, yeah. but their death rate wasn't any higher than that of New York, where, you know, until the last possible moment, they were, you know, vaccine passports and you couldn't go into a theater, yeah. you know, it, it, you know, masks everywhere. Florida, you know, I was there a year ago in, in the fall by the fall of 2021, it was completely open up and people were not dying there any any mm. more than they, you know, they, they were dying anywhere else. So I think that's a, a, a reasonable conclusion to draw. But like everything else in our bifurcated society, nobody wants to hear it. If it doesn't validate their political prejudices, they will not accept it. Right. Jonathan, um, anti-Semitism has always been around, but it seems that as of late, especially since the pandemic, it has increased. Not only that, but in addition to the rise of anti-Semitism, Israel seems to be getting more and more demonized. Would you agree with that? Well, I think, you know, of course, anti-Semitism has always been with us. Um, it's, you know, the Jews are the boogeymen of Western civilization, um, anti-Semitism is not about what the Jews do. It's about the anti-Semites and their needs for scapegoats and to, you know, have someone to hate and to, to blame for all their problems. Yes, it's, you know, it's gotten worse, but I don't think it's really the pandemic's fault, although the pandemic's kind of made it, all of us crazier. It just, it just clearly. feels like it, but it, everywhere you go, there's another, uh, uh act of anti-Semitism. I, I think there are clear more so factors. than than in in recent years. Yeah, I, I think there, you know, and you know, the anti-Semitism on the far right, and, and certainly on the left in the African American communities, it's all increasing, and for some very obvious reasons, it's being encouraged. It's you know, it's it's become a political issue. People, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it's true, you know, there's no. No heroes here. People on the right are very good at identifying it on the left, but don't don't want to recognize it uh, on the right. You know, quite frankly, President Trump, who did great things for Israel and was a true friend of the Jewish people. But, you know, when he has dinner with Kanye West and with a pack of Holocaust denying lunatics and then doesn't and then doesn't realize that he's legitimized them and won't take it back. And then everybody who supports him says it's no big deal. Right. That's a problem. And if you can't if you can't say that he's done wrong, 
you know, you're not you're part of the problem. Same thing on the, you know, President Biden, you know, castigates Trump and he castigates, you know, right wing anti-Semitism. Fine. But, you know, he just had Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib in the White House. Right. You know, so, you know, and, you know, uh, we have people uh, decrying anti-Semitism in, in concert with Al, with Al Sharpton. And I'm referring to the ADL, the group that's supposed to be defending us against anti-Semitism, which it, with its support of Black Lives Matter movement, of woke ideology, intersectional ideology and, and uh, critical race theory is actually supporting it. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's looking through, you know, it's, it's part of the problem too. So we have some real problems here that are not only not being addressed, they're being made worse in some cases by the people who claim right. to be fighting it. So would you say that the outspoken views of liberal Jews um, might be generating an increase in anti-Semitism? Well, you know, I want, I want to sort of make a very clear distinction here. I think, you know, when I say the ADL is part of the problem, it's because it's supporting, it's not condemning the things it should condemn. It's supporting some things it shouldn't support. Jews being liberals is not a cause of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is about the anti-Semites. Anti-Semites hate Jews because they're rich, because they're poor, because they assimilate and because they don't assimilate, because they're very liberal or because they're capitalists. That's, you know, don't blame the Jews for anti-Semitism. And that includes don't blame the Jews that you disagree with. I'm a conservative. I'm not going to blame liberals for anti-Semitism. You know, they haven't caused it. I think some of them may be wrong in their approach about it and, you know, in, in some ways contributing to the problem by not identifying the sources of anti-Semitism and making it political. But they're not Jews being one thing or another does not cause anti-Semitism. That's that's a, a myth. It's a dangerous myth. Anti-Semitism is caused by anti-Semites and their need to hate Jews, whether it's you know, as the great Ruth Weiss has said, it's it's the most successful ideology, anti-Semitism, and it's a political system. It's not just merely intolerance. And it, and that's because it attaches itself to every other kind of ideology, whether it's Nazism, fascism, communism, Islamism, you know, woke ideology is pushing anti-Semitism now. So that's the danger. Jonathan, I would like to refer to your article uh, in JNS about the Palestinians' World Cup propaganda victory. Typically, sports is meant to bring people together to embrace peace and coexistence. Has that happened here? Well, I think actually sports does not bring people together for, for peace and coexistence. You know, go to any ballpark and, you know, we're, we're all tribes fighting each other, you know, uh, you know, local yeah, New York too. hockey. You're on Working Long Island. Together, playing together, Island. you know. Islanders fans versus Ranger fans. That's not about peace and coexistence. It's about you know, you know, Islanders and Rangers. Rangers fans think that each of them are the sports version of Amalek. You know, so that's that's a myth. And when you mix nationalism in things like the World Cup or the Olympics, it's even worse. So I'm I'm a, I'm not I'm always down on that point. You know, bringing the flags and the anthems into it doesn't make things better. But what happened at the World Cup? In Qatar, which is, you know, the, the country which had never have been allowed to host any kind of international tournament. It's very wealthy and it bribed its way into getting this honor and, and this thing. But, you know, it, it's the primary source of funding for Islamist madrasas around the world. It's a funder. It's an ally of Iran. It's a funder of Hamas. What's happened to the World Cup is that the Palestinians have sort of, 
you know, their ideology is hijacked. It. They attach themselves to the Morocco team, ironically, a, t- a country at peace with Israel. Right. But what this has shown with their waving of Palestinian flags, and I, and I say this with sadness, that uh, even though many of the governments in the Middle East have gotten over and understood now that Israel isn't an enemy, it's a friend, ally, trading partner, um, but that the anti-Semitism that drives hatred of Israel throughout the Arab and Islamic world um, is still very strong among the ordinary people, and um, that's manifesting itself at the World Cup and in the reactions to the World Cup. Um, it's a it's it's kind of a reminder that the problem is very deep seated, and the peace agreements, the Abraham Accords, were an enormous achievement and a great thing, and they are, they're part of real progress. But the problem isn't over, not by a long shot. We're a long way from solving, you know, from that part of it over israel is still has to have its guard up israel is still hated by much of the world the international you know um you know establishment of the un its various bodies um we're making progress but the war is still ongoing that's what that's what the world cup should have reminded us this week right um you've alluded to uh something with in one of your articles with regard to um the zoa uh receiving criticism for honoring uh, Donald Trump. Can we talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, listen, the ZOA was quite right to honor Trump for his support for Israel. Donald Trump was the most pro-Israel president in our history. Not even close. Um, and he deserves to be you know, he deserves our gratitude for that. If you care about Israel, um, that doesn't, I, you know, I have to say, you know, and so, you know, importing sort of the political battles into the fight for Zionism is, is unfortunate because, you know, in our country, you know, if you're team blue, team red, anybody on the other side is evil. And, mm-hmm. you know, if there's anything we've seen, it's the principle of anybody I don't like is Hitler, which is what has enabled People, which sustains this, you know, Trump derangement syndrome on the on the left. But I have to also say, you know, once, and I have to say to the credit of ZOA and its president, Moore Klein, they issued a statement after, you know, only days after they honored him at their New York gala. You know, Trump has his dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, you know, the Holocaust denier and Milo Giannopoulos. And, you know, this was wrong. So, my, you know, what I would want, would like to say is that Trump deserves our gratitude, but not a lifetime Jedi, get out of jail free card. He he has no automatic, you know, um, hold on the votes of pro-Israel Jews. Um, you know, we judge people not on their origins or necessarily their ideology or whether they have R and D after their name, but on their behavior. Um, I was skeptical about what kind of president Donald Trump would be once in office. You know, he gave me nothing but things that I could support pretty much. I mean, you know, he ran his mouth foolishly, he tweeted foolishly, but, you know, his, his conduct in office, his policies were good. But, you know, just as, you know, every time we have a new president, I always write the same thing. You know, I will support when possible, oppose when necessary. That's how we ha- should approach Donald Trump now. When he does the right thing, give him a dinner. You know, give him an award when he does the wrong thing. Tell him he did the wrong thing. Don't deny it just because you're on Team Red or just because you're, 
you know, you've bought into, you know, um, you know, the whole uh, cult of, of Trump. Um, we should not be part of anybody's cult. We, sh- you know, it's, we have to judge people on their behavior, their conduct and their policies. And that inevitably leads to some mixed feelings about just about everybody. You know, read the, you know, read Netanyahu's memoir. Uh, <laughs> you know, and it, Trump doesn't come out in, you know, as, as the knight in shining armor in there for much of it, as much, as much as he give him his, gives him his proper credit for moving the embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing the Golan as Israeli and other things and the Abraham Accords. But, you know, yes, Trump is entitled to our gratitude, but not our political loyalty indefinitely. Jonathan, thank you for joining us today. It's, as I said earlier, it's been way too long. Thank you to Vin News and to our audience for tuning in. For listening to The Definitive Rap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.